Uh, I can say this, as I'm doing this every week, and going preaching through a book of the Bible, I can definitely say God is good, and that the Holy Spirit leads. And the Holy Spirit providentially leads, in spite of ourselves sometimes. And I can say that, just after having 11 years of experience doing this, but particularly on a weekend like this, where I had my schedule planned out for months and months before, what passage did I can preach which week? I had to shift it one week because um, I was gone and some different things. And then also the, the youth were going to be baptized in July, but some of their parents were gone and we couldn't do it, so we shifted it to this weekend. And I can just say none of this was planned except for, I think, God knew. And uh, because today's passage is probably about, if I were to choose a passage to preach at the baptism of you guys, probably this would be maybe the passage I would have chosen. And uh, it's pretty cool, because I don't think there's a more appropriate passage than what we're going to be looking at today. Um, it's an appropriate passage, because, because uh, so, so we're going to have uh, Anne and Amanda and Ishlin are going to be baptized later today. There's three girls that grew up in the church. Uh, their parents, I know all of their parents, their parents are, are seeking to follow God and, and raise, a, you know, be a Christian household. And... And now these three girls are, are taking the step of baptism, professing their own faith publicly today. And it's this passage we're looking at that is super significant because this is the moment, I really believe in Jacob's life, where Jacob goes from being this heel grabber, this guy who, who knew that his parents knew God, to really taking God and knowing him as his own. And so, this is going to be a, a little bit funny today. It's, it's like a wedding a little bit. You know, at a wedding, I talk to the couple in front. Like, my message is really to them, but it's also, I'm aware and everyone else is aware the message is also to everybody gathered. And so, this is a little bit. So, Anne, Ishwin, and Amanda, I'm going to be talking to you guys a little bit, but I'll be talking to everybody uh, this morning as well. And uh, so yeah, so actually I just want to pray before we look at this word a little bit closer. But Lord, I, I, I just thank you for today. Thank you for the word that we've read, that we've already been reflecting on. And, and may, yeah, as we just sang, word of God speak to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So Jacob. We know on one hand, like we know, and we reviewed this kind of, I reviewed it at the beginning of last week. That, that Jacob, we know, was set apart for God from before he was even born. You know, we, we, I gave a message just when we first introduced the story of Jacob on the, on the doctrine of election. That, that God knew Jacob before he was born. In fact, God chose Jacob before he was born. But we also know that in Jacob's life, that, that election worked itself out in Jacob's life. Election is, election is a secret thing that belongs to God. We don't know who's elect, right? We don't, we don't know, we don't know that. But we, we do know is that the elect come to faith, and that sometimes is even a messy, messy process. And, and Jacob comes to faith. Jacob, though we know he is elect, for most of his life, up until this point, which is about 40, at least 40 years old at this point, Jacob uh, has not been living like a person you, you, you would ever, ever consider, hey, that's a person who knows God, or who's following God. Jacob's life has been marked by manipulation and deceit all the way along. And when God does reveal himself to him, remember when Jacob first runs away from his brother Esau, God reveals himself to Jacob in a vision. You know, the, the, the Jacob's ladder, the angels are up and descending, 
And God reveals it to him, and he says something really significant to Jacob when he introduces him. Uh, Sally, can you just click on the screen so I know that this is working on this? Yeah, this, there we go. And so when, when God reveals himself to Jacob, when Jacob is a young man, maybe 20, 25, uh, the Lord introduces and says, Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And so God's words make it clear to Jacob, when God first reveals himself to him, I'm not your God, I'm the God of your dad, and I'm the God of your granddad. But he doesn't say, I'm your God. And Jacob knows this. Like, Jacob knows that God is the God of his fathers, that God is the God of his family, but that God is not his own God yet, because Jacob says, after God reveals himself to him, uh, Jacob says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I'll go, and give me bread and clothing to wear, so I'll come to get my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So Jacob is aware that though this is the God of his family, it, it, he, the Lord is not yet his God. And in fact, over the next 20 years when he's living in the land of Laban, um, a couple of times in these chapters, Jacob admits as much, and he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been my side, surely you would now set me away and be handed. He says again, when he prays in this chapter, O God of the father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. But he's not praying to God, and he's not proclaiming that God is his own. He's still painfully aware that God is the God of his family, God is the God of his fathers, but God is not his own God. Yet, at the end of this chapter, chapter 33, we're going to get to it today, something very important happens. At the end of these chapters that we read, it says, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Anybody Hebrew today? El Elohe Israel means an altar to God, to the God of Israel. Which, as we've heard already, that's the name God gives Jacob. And so at the end of these chapters, he makes a monument, and he professes, and he proclaims now, that God is his own. Not just God of my fathers, not just God of my grandfathers, but this is an altar to my God, the God of Israel. And ever after, in the Bible, from this moment on in the Scripture... God is referred to countless times, I'll just put one up here, as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right? A, a fundamental change in Jacob's life as he now knows God for himself. And so, I listen, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. You know, I'm interested. How many of you guys grew up in a Christian home? So, wow, about half, how many people grew up not in a Christian home? Yeah, a bunch of us as well. And so I didn't, I didn't, right? I didn't have parents who were praying for me. I didn't have parents who were bringing me to church. I didn't have parents who were, who were talking about God and trying to teach me about God. And to be honest, now that I am a Christian parent, I think it's a little weird. Like, I, I, I don't know what's going on because I, because I, I don't know, I don't know what that's like to grow up in a Christian family to, to have parents that I know are praying for me, that are trying to teach me the Bible, and, and knowing that God is, you know, the God of our family, but still trying to figure out, if he's the God of our family, does that mean he's, he's my God? And so when I'm interviewing, like, these youth, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of listening and, and curious as to, 
you know, when did you know or how did you come about that, that you knew that God was not just the God of your fathers, the God of your family, but, but, but your own God? And so they're going to be sharing a little bit in their testimonies when we go upstairs for baptism about how that's kind of worked out in their life. Um, but so this is what we're going to kind of look at as we go through this chapter. I've entitled this message, well, I gave it to Jacob, or God pins Jacob down and, uh, making God my own. And so that's kind of what I want to reflect on. How, how does that happen? And, uh, we, we at least see, and I, I don't, I think it probably happens differently for different people. But so I just want to bring out some of the things from Jacob's story as, as far as how, how does this happen in Jacob's life? And maybe it will connect with, with some of ours. The first thing I see in Jacob's life in, in this is that Jacob meets God for himself in a, in a moment of desperation or in a crisis of desperation. Um, you know, the chapter starts out, Jacob went on his way and the angel of God met him. And Jacob saw them and said, this is God's camp, and he called that place Mahanaim. But it's that, this is actually this, you know, the chapter divisions in the Bible were put in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. And, and I think if we were redoing it, maybe we would have connected this verse to the previous one. This is, this is like God giving Jacob a brief moment of rest after he's finally freed himself from the bully Laban and, and kind of like is ministered to. It reminds me of when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's, He's resisted the devil's temptation. He rebukes Satan, and the angels minister to him. It's a little bit of, of that sort of connection. And so we're going to move on quickly from that to, um, to really where we pick up in, in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob sends messengers before Esau to his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing him, Say this to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed until now. I own oxen, donkeys, flocks. I own it all. And I've to tell my Lord in order I may claim favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with them. And Jacob's greatly distressed. I mean, he, he fled from his brother 20 years earlier because he knew his brother wanted to kill him. And now he's come back. And, and, and think of where Jacob is. He has no place else to turn. That expression between a rock and a hard place, like that's where Jacob is. He's between a rock and a hard place. But the other expression we have He's out of the frying pan, and now he's going to face the fire. Right? He's freed himself of Laban. You know, he's, he's put an end and a clear break from that 20 years of wandering in the land of Laban. But now in front of him, he realizes there's there's a bigger challenge. My brother Esau, maybe he thought that Esau's anger had, you know, subsided over over 20 years. But then he hears from his messengers, no, Laban's come, or Esau's coming, and he's got 400 men with him. And 400 men in that day and age apparently was about the size of a military contingent. And, and Jacob, though he's prospered in the land of Laban, he doesn't have that sort of force with him. And he knows, I'm going to be facing my death. Esau is coming to kill me. And it's, you know, that's where we, we start in the story of Jacob coming and finding God for himself, of God putting Jacob down, is really in this moment of, of crisis. And I, you know, I, I don't think this is necessarily everyone's story, but it is a lot of people's story. Where you, where you, whether it's you're exposed to the gospel, you know, you're not from a Christian family, you're exposed to the gospel, you, you hear it a few times, or you grow up in a Christian home and you don't know yet, is, is my God my God or is it just God of my family? And the Lord 
often will meet people in those moments of desperation, in those moments of crisis, in those moments where we're, we're, we have nothing else within us and we cannot cope and we cannot handle where the Lord has brought us. And at that point we realize, at that moment, are we truly holding on to this God? Is this God our own? And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, for those of you who are parents in here, um, or will be, it's like we understand this about our life, because we understand this about our own Christian life. We understand this about how those moments when we were in crisis and desperation, how those were the moments where we realized our faith was real and substantial. And we've understood in our own life how God has met us and guided us in those moments of trouble. But yet, none of us as parents want to see our kids suffer. We don't want to see our kids struggle. We don't want to see our kids hurt. We don't want to see our kids, you know, in the moment. It pains me. Nothing pains me more as a parent than to see my children hurting. But as a Christian, I also know that it's through those moments of crisis and those moments of hurt and those moments of pain that my kids are going to grow. And, and, and my prayer is that in those moments of pain, those moments of crisis, those moments of hurt, that's when my kids will know the Lord. And we'll understand who the Lord is and, and understand that the Lord is not just the God of our family, but their God themselves. That they, they learn to cry out to the Lord. They learn how to depend on the Lord. They learn how to trust in the Lord. And so I realize as a parent, I can't shield my, my family. I can't shield, I can't be the protector of my kids. I can't put bubble wrap around them and shield them from all of life's troubles and sorrows. It just can't happen. And it can't happen because they'll never grow. It's not that I want to add to their crisis. I don't want to add to their trials. But it's a hard thing as a parent. And, and I, I know most of the parents I've talked to that we struggle with that. We struggle with how much do I protect my kids and shield my kids, knowing that it's generally through those moments of pain that they will truly know God for themselves and learn how to call on Him. You know, it's, it's for, for all of us as well. You know, you might have a coworker at work who you... You just think, well, this guy, he's so hardened, or, or her heart is just so, she's got that shield on. She's so strong. She's so self-dependent. You know, he's, he'll, he would never, ever, you know, my faith, that my God won't be relevant to him. But then he hits a moment of crisis, or she hits a moment of pain in her life. You know, church, that's that's the moment where, where, where you can come, you can love them, you can walk beside them, you can be a, a friend to them. And that's the moment where you can share the hope and the love of the gospel of Christ with them. And so be looking for those, you know, opportunities and scenarios in your friends and your co-workers' lives. Where you can come alongside and say, yeah, life is hard, but there is a God who loves you. There's a God who, who can be your rock in uh, uncertain waters. And so that's where we find Jacob at this beginning. And, and in this moment of crisis, look what Jacob does. Jacob, in this moment of crisis, he turns to his parents' God, and he recognizes that throughout his life, God has actually been very good to him. But yet, he still praised him as just, this is the God of my family. He says, in Genesis 32, 9, he says, Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country, your kindred, that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, now I've become two camps. 
Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I surely will do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It, it is still interesting to me how Jacob addresses this God to whom he's praying. It, it's as if God, I know you've been so good to me, even though I have not been walking with you. You're the God of my family, you're the God of my fathers, and I've seen I'm so unworthy of this love and this care and this concern that you have put on me. And I don't know why you have done it other than simply stating that these are the promises you've made to my parents, and these are the promises you've made to me. And, God, and Jacob is starting to realize, but he's realizing this out of a place of desperation. And we do this so much when, we, when we're in those places of crisis where we call on God. But I want you to see one thing about Jacob's prayer. Jacob prays that he might be delivered from this crisis. But what truly we're going to see in this passage is that Jacob doesn't only need to be delivered from Esau. Jacob needs to be delivered from Jacob. Like that's where we're going to go in this. Jacob actually needs to be delivered from his Jacobness. It's, it's not that he woke up one day and Esau was angry with him. It's that Jacob, on account of his own sin and his own heart and his own life, Jacob has suffered the consequences of his Jacobness. And so him calling out to God and saying, God, deliver me, is still yet not exactly as far deep as this passage is going to go. It's not, it's not enough to the heart as where we're going to be taken. Because it's easy when you grow up in a Christian home and to know that God has been somehow present in your family and you hit a moment of trial and you say, okay, I'm going to pray to God and you know him a bit, but you're calling on him to get him out of your trouble, to get you out of your trouble. And, and we're going to go, God's going to press Jacob quite a bit more in this passage. In this, in this moment in Jacob's life, God is going to impress to him that he doesn't only need to be delivered from his consequences of his sin, he needs to be delivered of his Jacob, of himself. And so, Jacob then does something, he does something here now that points us to the gospel. He does something here now that points us to our hope. And what he does is he stays there that night, and he he understands how deeply he sins against Esau, and, and, and just how how just Esau's anger is toward him. And what he does is he stays there that night, and he and what he does is he sets up his camp in various different divisions, and he sends each division in front of him, and when every division comes to Jacob, uh, they're going to say, what, 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 what are all these cows doing here? And they're going to say, these are yours, my lord. They are a gift from your brother Jacob, and he's coming right behind. And he does it again, and they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. And with every wave of these gifts, the idea is that maybe Esau's anger will be appeased. And that's what this gift is, and, and, and that's what Jacob knows. He knows this in his heart. He knows that when he has sinned against his brother, when he has sinned against Esau, he knows that just showing up and saying, hey man, I'm sorry, isn't actually going to appease the anger of Esau against his sin. 
And so Jacob intuitively knows that when he has sinned against someone, he needs to provide what is called, and we're going to give this word, and you guys have known this word, you've heard this word before, he needs to provide a propitiation. What is a propitiation? A propitiation is an offering that turns away anger. Okay? So it's an offering that turns away anger, and Jacob knows he has angered his brother severely, and that He's trying to survive. He knows his brother is coming with 400 men to kill him. And so he needs an offering that will turn away anger. He needs a propitiating sacrifice. And so he sends these away. Like a couple, about a month ago, um, I really messed up. And I really offended a friend of mine. Like, hurt her. her. I, I, I did something that offended her. And, uh, you know, she called me out on it. She said, you know, when you did that, that really hurt me. That, that hurt when you did that. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I talked to her when she told me, when she confronted me about how I hurt her. I said, oh man, I am sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. And But yet she was still hurt. Right? And, and I felt terrible. Like I, I knew that I had blown it. And I felt terrible, terrible, terrible. And all I could say to her was, I'm, I'm really sorry. I I, I don't have any excuse. I don't have any explanation. I'm sorry. And she said, yeah, I know I, I forgive you, but but I, she still was hurt. And so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what more I could say. I couldn't turn back the clock. And so I went out and got her a frappuccino. <laughs> you know? And, and, and I said, here, you know, I, I really am sorry. Can you, you know, here. And... And we know, and how we, we've done that, right? We've done that. When we know we've hurt somebody, when we know we've offended somebody, or sinned against someone, it's 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 a, it's built into us that feeling of it's just saying sorry is not enough. I, I have to give and I have to do something. And for minor offenses, that generally tends to work, right? For minor relational offenses, that generally tends to work. But what if you've sinned against someone? And it's not a minor offense. What if it's a major offense? What if you're out driving and you have drinks and you hit someone? You feel terrible. You can say you're sorry. But what propitiating sacrifice, what, what offering that could turn away anger, would you, what, what would you even do? How can you how can you deal with the weight of what you have caused by your sin? And so how do you deal with a major offense? And then, what, how do you deal with an offense that's ongoing? How do you, how do you deal with it if you, if you offended someone again and again and again and again and again? How could you deal with the weight of that guilt? What sort of propitiating sacrifice could you even have? That you can bring before you and say, I know I offended you deeply, and I know I have offended you continually. And so Jacob is pointing us here to a reality of life and relationship, but I want to let you know that what Jacob is pointing us here to, we're going to take it a bit deeper because this is where the, the, the passage goes to, because God shows up and we realize that the sin has not been against Esau, it's been against God. And I want you to consider this morning your sin against a holy God. 
A God who is the perfect standard of justice and perfection and righteousness. A God who has given you every single breath, every single second of your life. And you see it fit not to worship God or to give Him thanks, but to turn from Him and to reject Him and to rebel against Him. What an immense offense. It's not like I, I, I forgot to do something for you and now I feel sorry to you. I have sinned against the holiness of a perfect God and I have sinned against Him continually. And how in the world could I ever bring or make a propitiating sacrifice in offering that could turn away wrath? And you might come to a point in your life where you realize, I've sinned against this God. And you realize, I, I have nowhere else to turn because Laban is behind me and Esau's in front of me. I'm in this crisis and I need to come to God and I realize you've been the God of my parents, you've been the God of my father, and you've been better to me than I deserve. And you begin to realize this. But now you say, how do I make this right? And the reality is we cannot. The reality is we cannot. There is no propitiating sacrifice that we can bring in order to make things right between us and the God who we have continuously and egregiously offended. Yet there is an offering that turns away anger. And there you go. The New Testament proclaims that this is this is this is the reason why Jesus was sent into this world. This is the reason why Jesus has come. It is not because of God. we don't just go to God and we say, "Oh God, you know, I'm sorry, I screwed up again." We need an offering that turns away anger, and this is why Jesus Christ has come to the world. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says, yes, there, there may be a way that you could bring a propitiating sacrifice, an offering that could turn away anger. You might be able to do it. Just pray more, or go to church more, or, or give your money more. What the gospel of Christianity proclaims is there is no propitiating sacrifice. There's no offering that can turn away anger that we can bring that will be sufficient for the offense that we have caused. But this is love, John tells us in his letter that we call First John. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So this is how we know and we have seen God's love that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That, 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 and, and this is so much different than the way the world operates. It's so much different than the way our heart operates. But it's, it's this, when we were unable to appease the holiness of God that we had violated, God himself, in his love, said, I, I will not accept from you, I won't accept from you the offering to turn away my anger. There is no offering that you can bring that will turn my, away my anger, but because I love you, I myself will be the offering. I myself will be the propitiating sacrifice. I myself will make that payment and be that gift that will turn away and that will appease my justice. 
And that is the, the that is the missing puzzle for many people because they a lot of people understand. I understand my heart. I understand that sin against God. I understand that God is a loving God. I understand that I need to call out to Him to to receive forgiveness of sins. But sometimes people don't understand how does Jesus fit into that. Well, this is how Jesus fits into that. Jesus is the offering that turns away anger. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. He made that payment and he paid that price that we could not. And then God raised him from the dead, proclaiming that everyone who trusts in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. That God God will no longer be angry. He will no longer be offended by what we have done against him. But he is pleased to accept the propitiation that Jesus provided. So Jacob points us, Jacob, that impulse to pay back, that impulse to to to, to provide a, a, an offering that turns away anger. Maybe Jacob could appease his brother's anger, but he needed something greater to appease God's. And God does something here. God shows up. And God pins Jacob down and gives him a new identity. So Jacob, Jacob's terrified. Right, of Esau, and he was left alone, and he sends his wife and his children ahead of him, and he's left alone, and, and here's one of the most unexpected and mysterious passages in scripture. Like, it's dark, and Jacob's alone, and this man appears out of nowhere, and tackles him. Right, like, and grabs him. And he wrestles with Jacob until morning. Jacob maybe thought it was an assailant sent from Esau. I mean, can you imagine? What would you think? You're, you're waiting for Esau's wrath to come the next day and suddenly you're tackled in the night by someone? And Jacob might have thought, this is this is an assailant. Esau sent this guy. And so Jacob, Jacob wrestles against him. And he puts a powerful fight and he grapples with the stranger till morning. But, but Jacob, we know about Jacob, he refuses to surrender. Right? Jacob, in, in his stubbornness, he refuses to let this stranger overpower him and get the better of him. And so he keeps on fighting, he keeps on grappling with him until morning. And Jacob's stubborn will won't be broken. And the stranger, knowing that Jacob will never give up or surrender, the stranger in the morning, when the light's coming up, the stranger reveals his unbelievable strength. Jacob won't let go of him, but the stranger just reaches out and taps his hip and dislocates it. And yet Jacob still won't let go. Like, think of the stubbornness of Jacob, and I mean that in a good way. You know, my wife tells the story, I hope I won't embarrass her or tell her, but she tells the story, she's, she says, in the, and when she was young, she was stubborn. Maybe when she was younger, how often she was stubborn. And her dad actually said something really wise to her. It was your dad or her mom. And she says, she said to her, Jean, you know, stubbornness is not always bad. Stubbornness can be really good if you're stubborn about the right things. And so Jacob, Jacob is stubborn. He's always been stubborn. And, and, and this man who appears touches his death, and Jacob still won't let go. But now the man reveals some amazing things to Jacob. And the biggest reveal, obviously, the biggest reveal is that this has not been a man at all that Jacob has been wrestling with all night. It's been God himself. That, 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 that God 
has been revealing himself to Jacob in the form of a man, and that it's been God that Jacob has been wrestling with. And we know Jacob's not just been wrestling with God that night. We know that this has been Jacob wrestling with God his, his entire life. Jacob has been wrestling against this God of his fathers. And Jacob never lets him go. This is the wrestling. Jacob won't let him go. He's so stubborn, he won't let him go. But he also refuses to submit. Even when even when he's touched his hip and dislocated it, Jacob won't let him go, but he also refuses to submit. And, and I can only wonder if that's a little bit, I don't know, but I can only wonder if that's a little bit what it's like growing up in the church. Where you know God is there, God has always been present, God's always been a part of my life, God's always been a part of my family, and, you know, and no matter how much I try, I can't get away from him. And he's always there, but yet my heart is also, I'm not yet refusing to submit to him either. And so you're holding on to him, but you're also like fighting against him. And, and at least what I've heard from some of you is that's a little bit of what I hear in your stories. Like God's always there. I can't escape him. I can't let him go. But I also not yet submitted to him either. And so what God does to Jacob, he does something more powerful than a touch on his head. He, he gets Jacob to see the true nature of who he is. And he says to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob has to reply because there's only one answer to that. What is your name, Jacob? Jacob. And we know the significance of the name Jacob. What is the significance? Oh, sorry. What is the significance of the name Jacob? What does it mean? The usurper, the cheater, the heel grabber. So God is not demanding that Jacob tell him his name. He's demanding that Jacob acknowledge his character. He's demanding that Jacob confesses the nastiness of his own heart. He's confessing that Jacob understands and acknowledges his nature as a man who all his life has been fighting against this God of his family. Confess your sin. Confess and acknowledge your nature. And at some point in your life, maybe it's in that time of crisis. Maybe it's in that time where you say, well, God has been so good to me even though I don't deserve it. He's been a part of my life. I can't escape him. And God suddenly will reveal to you the true nature of your heart before a holy God. And you realize you don't need to be delivered from the circumstance. You need to be delivered from your Jacobness. You need to be delivered from your nasty heart. Because that's the true problem in front of a holy God. And so Jacob confesses before this holy God. He confesses his Jacobness. What's your name, Jacob? And God says to him, you will no longer be Jacob. You will no longer be Jacob. I've got a new name for you. For now I'm going to be called Israel. Because you have contended, you've struggled with God and prevailed. So he gets... He gets this new name. He, the name Israel is uh, has a dual meaning. It means it means the one who struggles with God, or the one who contends with God, the one who struggles with God. But the name has a new meaning. 
There's actually two forms, and this, this might speak to us well. There's actually two ways that you can interpret this name, the one who struggles with God. The one way it could be is maybe more positive. You are the one who will face struggles and trials in this world. You are the one who will, who will face many difficulties, but God is on your side standing with you. You, you will struggle, but when you struggle, you will struggle with God. And then there's the other meaning. The other meaning seems maybe even more obvious to us. Jacob, here's part of your new nature, and this is part of who you're always going to be. You're going to be the one who at times struggles against God. You're the one who at times is going to, your faith is not going to be easy, but you are going to be contending against God. But here's the thing, you will be contending against the God who you know and the God who is yours. And this is the story of Israel. This is the story of the rest of Jacob's life. He, he goes and he contends with God on his side, and he goes and sometimes he contends against God. It's the story of Israel as the nation. Right? The story of Israel as the nation is the, the, the nation on whom God is on their side, but they're also the nation that really struggles in their faith and contends at times against God. This is the story of what it means to be a Christian. We struggle with God knowing that we face difficulties in this world and that God will never leave us and never forsake us. He's our help in times of trouble. But Christians, we know that the life of faith is difficult. And there are times where we struggle against God. That doesn't make us less of a child of God. That doesn't, that doesn't change the fact of God's regenerating us or, or, or adopting us into his family. It just means that we live in a world of many troubles and faith is hard. But it's, it's like this, it's, it's, it's interesting to acknowledge that faith, that we're given this new name, the one who struggles with God. It, I, I don't know, I've got friends who are, who are atheists. Maybe some of you guys do. And I think it's really weird sometimes, because you get some, you get some people who are atheists who, uh, who just seems their whole life is railing against this God they don't believe in. But God's not real, and I hate him. Not all atheists are like that, for sure. But I've met some that are like that. That are like, God's not real. I don't believe that God's real at all, but I hate him. So how can you have to hate somebody you don't believe in? And it's this idea of, we as Christians, we understand that God is real. That, that there's a God with whom we are striving with, and there's a God with whom sometimes we're struggling against. Yet, yet we can't, no matter the struggle, no matter the questions, no matter the doubts, no matter what we are facing with God and with God on our side, no matter what it is, we understand that there's a God who we have sinned against. There's a God who has loved us. There's a God who has provided that propitiating sacrifice for our sins of Jesus Christ. There's a God who has claimed us as his own. And there's a, there's, there is a God who is our God who we are struggling, struggling and striving with and against. And so, I don't have time this morning to finish the story. You can read it on your own of how, how after Jacob gets this new name, Israel, he goes back and reconciles with his brother, and Esau forgives Jacob and takes him back. It's a beautiful scene that you can read on, you can reflect it on your own. There is something there about, about true redemption, about, about having a true relationship restored with God and then being reconciled to those around us. You know, it's the idea that in the Lord's Prayer we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
So that there is this idea that this horizontal relationship overflows into the vertical. But I'm not going to have time this morning to unpack all of that. You can read that on your own. I just want to get us to the end of chapter 33. And so Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padamaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Canaan, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, a piece of land in which he had pitched his tent. So Jacob now has possession in the land. And there he erected an altar, and he called it Elohe Israel. What does it mean? I told the kids. What does it mean? To God. The God of Israel. Jacob builds a monument, and in this monument, he sets up, he's making a public profession, a public declaration, a monument that will stand to say, God is no longer the God of just my family. He's mine. He's, he's wrestled with God, and he's prevailed. After all these years, the heel grabber has been pinned down and grabbed hold of by his God. And so I'm going to ask you guys this morning, have you? I don't know where you are all at spiritually this morning. I don't know where you're all at with your relationship with God. I see that we have some visitors, newcomers here today. I welcome you. But, but this is what we do each weekend. I, I want you to reflect on your heart before God. Do you know him for yourself? Have you been wrestling with God all these years? And is he finally now bringing you to a point of surrender? Is he demanding of you this morning that you confess and acknowledge the true nature of your heart before him? Is he showing you your need? Like maybe today for the first time you've understood, oh, that's why Jesus. Because you've understood now that there is a need for a propitiating sacrifice, an offering that turns away anger, and that God has provided one in himself. Is he giving you faith to embrace this salvation in Jesus Christ and in embracing Jesus Christ? Is he, is, he, is, he, is, he, is he guiding you into a new name that I could be the one who struggles with and against God? Is he giving a new identity to you this morning? Is he giving you a new nature, a new future, a new family in the church? I, I, would, I would implore you guys, and, and youth over there, I would implore all of you guys that, that Christ may not just be the God of your family, but but that he may give you faith, your own faith, that you would wrestle with and know God for yourself. I call out to him today and be no longer Jacob, but Israel. And make a monument to him. That's what we're going to do this morning. I am baptizing each one, Anne and Amanda. I, I said, these, these, these young ladies... I have a privilege of knowing them. I, I, I love you guys. And, uh, you know, they grew up in these Christian homes. They've been raised in the church. And today they wish they're not going to build a monument. They're going to do the sign that Jesus has commanded us as the church to do, which is baptism. Baptism is uh, a picture that God has given to the church. It's an ordinance. He's ordered us to do this. Where we, upon coming to faith in Jesus, upon recognizing our nature as sinners against the Holy God, but embracing the forgiveness and the propitiating sacrifice of the gospel, it's, it's where we make a public declaration that, that God is now our own. And so that's what we're going to be doing here this morning. We're, we're going to finish the service, and then we're going to be going upstairs. And I pray for these girls. Pray for these girls. And, yeah, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for today. And I, and I will say this to any of you who are here today. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. Maybe today is the day when you call upon the name of the Lord 
for yourself. Say, Jesus, I need you. Please save me. And as we're doing the baptism, as we're preparing to walk upstairs, come and talk to me. Maybe maybe today is the day that you say, yes, I also want to come forward and I want to profess my my faith publicly. I want to make this monument through baptism to say, God is now Elohe Israel. He is the God of my own. Alright, so that's the invitation today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, uh, thank you so much for this day, thank you so much for your word, thank you so much for this passage uh, that fits so appropriately with what we're celebrating today in Anish and Amanda. We pray for them, we pray for the children, we pray for all the youth of our church. Lord, we pray that as their parents love them and pray for them and teach them in the way of the Lord, we pray that these children will, will, will rise up and will know that you are not just their parents, God, but you are their own God. I pray for others who are gathered here today. Maybe somebody's here today and, and it's the first time they've ever come to church. This is the first time they've ever heard of Jesus. This is the first time they've ever heard of how they've sinned against the Holy God and how you have provided a, an offering that turns away anger. And I pray today that they come today and that they would know that there's a reason why they're here and they're here today because you, God, have been better to them than they deserve. That you have guided over and watched over their life even though they did not know you. And you've brought them here to this place where they can hear this message of good news. I pray that today they may come and, 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 and wish and, and have to give them the faith to call upon your name and be saved and be forgiven and to be embraced and to be accepted into your family. I pray for us all, Lord Jesus, that maybe, maybe there's some of us here who have been Christians for many years and we're still struggling with God. We're struggling in the things of the world, and we've seen you on our side, but sometimes, God, we're also struggling against you. And, and Lord, I pray that you, you help us in our struggle, that you're present with us in our struggle, that you meet us in our struggle, that you wrestle us in our struggle, and that sometimes, Lord, you even pin us down and, and pop our hip out in our struggle. But Lord, sometimes we just need you to rebuke us. You need us to call, and, and, and Lord, we need you to never let us go. We're so thankful for your promises that you never lose us. You never forsake us. You carry us. You, Lord, are sure about, about us. You are glory and the lift of our happiness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue in our